welcome to Come Follow Me with Brie, episode 90, Deliver. Hello everyone, I'm so glad you're here. I am excited today, summer is almost here, my kids get out of school in a couple of days, although you wouldn't know it to look outside because it's been rainy and cold, which I know technically for Utah is a good thing that it's been raining a lot, so I'll try not to complain too much, but I am ready and I am I am really excited for, for these summer months. My family and I are especially excited this week to start our miracle jar. If you remember last week, we talked about how the Israelites walked across the River Jordan on dry ground and they were commanded for each tribe to take a stone from the river to remind them of that miracle and remind their posterity of that miracle. So in our family, we're doing the same thing. Always when we go places, even before this, we always collect rocks because my mom collects rocks. And so we're just a family of rock collectors. And so we have all these rocks. So what we want to do is start to write our own family or individual miracles on them. And we're going to have a a big, pretty glass jar that we have set out on our counter and anyone can put a rock in at any time. And I really think that the Lord is going to bless us for acknowledging and noticing and seeking and expecting miracles. So if you didn't hear that last week or you forgot about it or or whatever and you wanted to do it, I'm really excited for any of you guys to join us because I just think it would be such a sign to the Lord that we believe that he will provide miracles and that we are ready to be grateful and accept them. So if you want to join us, do that. I think it'll be great. Okay, so let's move on to what we are talking about this week. This week is the book of Judges. And at least for me, I hadn't really ever thought about what the term judges means in the Old Testament. I think a lot of us probably think of judges as a political figure, as someone who is judging the people according to the law, because that's the definition that we get in the Book of Mormon. But here in the Old Testament, we see that judges are people who were called of God and served roles as military leaders in a time of crisis when the the people were in bondage or in trouble. Essentially, it was a person who was called to deliver the people. And these deliverers rose up as the people went through a pretty predictable cycle, one that we can kind of recognize from the Book of Mormon. At the very beginning of this, this cycle starts as Joshua dies. And that's how this cycle continues. Each time they have a new judge, a new deliverer, they would stay righteous after they were they were rescued for a little bit until that judge died. And so this starts when Joshua dies. So they're they're righteous until Joshua dies and also all of the the priests that were under Joshua. And then they started to have problems and become wicked and worship the gods of the Canaanites. And then they're captured. And after they're captured, of course, that humbles them and they cry to the Lord. And then eventually the Lord raises up a judge to liberate them. And then the people are happy and grateful to the Lord until that judge dies. And then they start the cycle over again. And we see in the first couple of chapters, chapters two through four, that this happens over and over and over again. And the book of Judges covers about 200 years of history for the Israelites. So what we have in chapters two through four is basically just a a big slew of these judges where it just goes through they're righteous, then they fall away. And anyway, they go through the cycle several times, even in just these first few chapters. In chapter four, we actually get kind of an exciting judge. She's a woman judge named Deborah. And um, I'm going to really quickly summarize the, the judges that we talk about in these chapters. So Deborah and Barak are 
judges during the same time period. And Barack is being called upon to come liberate the people from the, well, who was it? The Canaanites. They're in um, captivity to the Canaanites. And Barack refuses to go unless Deborah will go. And so Deborah agrees to go with them and they rescue the Israelites to, to victory when, as Deborah comes. Um, and then in chapter six to eight, we have the judge Gideon who rescues or helps lead the Israelites, um, out of bondage from the Midianites. Gideon was called of God by an angel who came to him and, and called him to be a judge. And Gideon feels very unsure of this calling, but he, he decides to go ahead and accept that calling and he builds an altar to a Lord. He destroys the, the false altar that the people had built up and performs miracles so that the people will believe in him. And then he gathers an army to defeat the Midianites. And the Lord wants to make sure that the Israelites credit him for this victory. And so he has Gideon kind of weed down the, the soldiers that he has available until he gets to only 300 men. And with those 300 men, he surrounds the Midianites and has them blow their horns, all 300 of them. And at the time when a horn was blown in battle, it represented a lot of soldiers. And so the Midianites, because they heard 300 of these horns being blown at the same time surrounding their city, they assumed that they were pretty much doomed. So they surrendered and the Israelites were, were rescued from the Midianites. And then the last judge we get is Samson. And I think this is probably, he's the most recognizable story in this particular portion of the Old Testament that we're in. He's the one with the long hair and the, the great strength. And to be honest, his story is kind of unsettling. I, as you read it, I have a hard time liking him or thinking that he's a good guy because he kills a whole lot of people. And I did read that there's a lot of people who think that we are missing a whole lot from the story of Samson, which would make sense because honestly, he doesn't really seem like that great of a guy. In fact, in his story, he kills 30 men for not answering a riddle that he had told them. And it's this whole thing where he, he marries this, this Philistine woman, which really he's not supposed to be doing. Um, the, his parents are really unhappy with that. And then he kills this lion and bees come and make honey in the carcass of the lion. And anyway, and then he tells this riddle about, about the lion. And honestly, when I read it, I think it's kind of silly. <laughs> it's kind of a dumb riddle. And he tells the men that they, if they can answer his riddle within seven days, that he'll give them a bunch of clothes. And so he waits the seven days and then his new wife begs him to tell her and tell her and tell her. And he finally tells her. And she really sounds pretty dramatic. And after he tells her, she goes and tells the men. And then Samson gets super mad that they didn't figure it out themselves. And he kills 30 men. So I don't know. He's kind of a weird guy. But Samson's story starts out pretty cool. His parents had a vision. So it starts out with his mother having a, a vision. And we don't have her name. Um, but an angel comes to her. And she is barren. She's in a field. And the angel says that she's going to have a son and he asks that she raise him as a Nazarite. And a Nazarite is typically something that somebody would devote themselves to for a short amount of time. And it's, it kind of reminds me of like being a nun or a priest. It means that you're devoting yourself to God for a time period. And that devotion would give you extra power. 
And during that time, you would have no wine or no grape products, which is a big deal because they ate a lot of grapes those days. And they were not allowed to cut their hair and they were not allowed to come in contact with the dead. So Samson's mother raises him entirely as a Nazarite. It's not just a short period of time like like is normal. She raises him as a Nazarite. And as a result, he is extremely strong. He's been given great power from the Lord through this covenant to live his life as a Nazarite, which I think is a great reminder to us that covenants can quite literally give us power. We're given spiritual power. I think we can also be given physical power. We can be given whatever kind of power the Lord wants us to have. So keep our covenants. So kind of back to his story. After he kills the 30 men for not answering his riddle, he goes away. It seems that people are mad at him, which makes sense in my book. Um, but eventually he comes back and he finds that his wife is married to one of his previous friends and that her father allowed it. And he's super angry. He burns the crops. The Philistines, who they're in bondage to, think it was um, his wife's father and his wife. And so the Philistines burn them, but then they find out it was Samson. And then the Israelites turn Samson over to the Philistines because they don't want to be in trouble. They're like, I don't know what you just did. We don't want any trouble from the Philistines. So then Samson is in bondage to the Philistines and he asks for strength from the Lord and he's able to get out of his, of his bonds and grab a donkey's jawbone. And with that jawbone, he kills a thousand men and then he takes a drink at a well. And then he falls in love with a woman named Delilah, who is also a Philistine. And the Philistine men are still afraid of Samson. They want him gone. And so they want to know the source of his strength. And so they bribe Delilah to go find out from Samson where he gets his strength. And Samson lies three times. And she also sounds very dramatic. And she's saying, if you love me, why, why aren't you telling me the truth? And, you know, whatever she said. And so he finally tells her and he tells her that his source of strength comes from his hair. And of course, his hair doesn't literally make him strong, but it represents that covenant he made with the Lord to live as a Nazarite. So the the men sneak into his tent. Delilah kind of lulls him to sleep and they cut off his hair and he loses his strength. And so they're able to ca capture him. They gouge out his eyes, which I guess was common. And then they take him into this big building and they're all partying around Samson and being happy that they captured him. And he calls on the Lord one last time to give him strength. And he asks one of the people that has him captive to help him find a, a pillar so he can lean because he's, he's not feeling too great. And he leans on the pillar and as he's calling on strength from the Lord, he grabs the pillar and he's able to bring the entire building down and 3000 Philistines are killed. So like I said, I, I think I agree that I think we're missing a lot of Samson's story because I wouldn't really say it sounds like he much delivered them. I don't know. Maybe it, then the Israelites are then able to go on and defeat the Philistines because Samson has made such a huge dent in them. I don't know. It seems like we're missing a lot of his story. Something else to keep in mind as we're reading about these judges is that when it's talking about the Israelites in bondage to um, the Philistines or the Midianites, it's not actually generally talking about the entirety of the Israelites being in bondage. When they got to the promised land, they divided into different tribes and groups. And so whenever they're talking, the, the scriptures are talking about them being in bondage, 
it's these little subsections of the Israelites that, that went into bondage to um, another people. Okay, so this is what we're going to talk about this week. We're going to talk about the cycle that the Israelites are going through. They're going through this this kind of pride cycle where they start out righteous, they get wicked, they go into captivity, they cry to the Lord, they're humbled, and then they are delivered by a judge. This is certainly a pattern we see throughout Scripture. We already saw a whole bunch of that in the the previous parts of the Old Testament that we've read where a civilization, a group of people do the same thing. That is a theme of the scriptures. So with the cycles being so prevalent in the scriptures, that leads us to ask, do these lessons of captivity or destruction apply to us, literally? And of course, the answer is yes. We have been told that a righteous nation can stand and a wicked one ultimately cannot. Now, this all being said, I was a little unsettled this last week. The Come Follow Me manual talks a little bit about some of these unsettling feelings we may have as we read the Old Testament and we read things that are so culturally foreign to us that may seem even cruel or even wrong. I was bothered last week thinking of this great prophet Joshua coming in as a military leader and then coming to the city of Jericho and killing both old and young. It just feels wrong. It's not how we see conflicts between nations play out right now, um, at least nations that we believe to be righteous nations. That's not how we do war. We don't go and kill everyone. The Come Follow Me manual addresses a bunch of these kinds of things. Um, the little section that they have, it's between the second and third, third and fourth week of, of May. Um, it's called Things to Keep in Mind, the Historical Books of the Old Testament. You should definitely read it. It's really good. But one of the things that it addresses is this thing that has been bothering me so much. It says, when reading the Old Testament, as with any history, you're likely to read about people doing or saying things to modernize seem strange or even troubling. We should expect this. Old Testament writers saw the world from a perspective that was, in some ways, quite different from ours. Violence, ethnic relations, and the roles of women are just some of the issues that ancient writers might have seen differently than we do today. So what should we do when we come across passages in the scriptures that seem troubling? First, it might help to consider each passage in a broader context. How does this fit in God's plan of salvation? How does it fit with what you know about the nature of Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ? How does it fit with revealed truths in other scriptures and with the teachings of living prophets? And how does it fit with the whisperings of the Spirit in your own heart and mind? In some cases, the passage may not seem to fit well with any of those. Sometimes the passage may be like a puzzle piece that doesn't look like it has a place among all the other pieces you've already assembled. Trying to force the piece to fit isn't the best approach, but neither is giving up on the entire puzzle. Instead, you may need to set the piece aside for now. As you learn more and put together more of the puzzle, you may be able to better see how the pieces fit together. It can also help to remember that in addition to being limited to a particular perspective, Scriptural histories are subject to human error. For example, over the centuries, many plain and precious things were taken away from the Bible, including important truths about the doctrine and ordinances. At the same time, we should be willing to admit that our own perspectives are also limited. There will always be things we don't fully understand and questions we can't yet answer. And actually, as I was reading that, it brought to mind the story of Lot and how the angels, the two angels came into to Sodom. Lot invited them or urged them, basically forced them to come into his house because he's like, what are you guys doing here? You're going to get into trouble. And after they come in and he feeds them, the people, the men of the city come and they say, hey, 
we want to know these men, meaning basically that they wanted to commit sexual assault. And in the, the King James version of this account, it seems, and actually it says that Lot basically offered up his daughters instead and said, Hey, don't bother these men, but take my daughters. And then we see in the Joseph Smith translation that it completely changes it. He didn't actually say that. He didn't offer up his daughters. He is pleading for all of them to be left alone. And then the angels help that happen. So my point is, is that there are small changes. There are things in the Old Testament that we just don't have clarification for. And clearly, even a small change in in the wording, change in what happened, can completely change our perception about what these people did. And so I think about that with Samson. And I wonder what is missing in that story. Because to me, I read his story and he doesn't really seem like somebody that God would be using. But we very well could be missing some important details that would make him seem a little better in our eyes. Or maybe not. But that doesn't mean that there isn't awesome things to be learned from his story. And I think that's where what the Come Follow Me manual said in there comes into play. We can ask ourselves questions. Where does this fit in God's plan of salvation? How does it fit with what you know about the nature of Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ? How does it fit with revealed truths and other scriptures in the teachings of living prophets? And how does it fit with the whisperings of the Spirit in our own heart and mind? Clearly, these scriptures, though flawed, are valuable. But this all being said, I, as I was troubled this week, I received the coolest answer to a prayer. The violence overtaking the land of Canaan was, was really bothering me because that violence was caused by who I was, I was viewing as the, the righteous party. And of course, Heavenly Father knew that. He knew that I was kind of unsettled by all of that. And it was simmering in my mind, but I wasn't necessarily actively praying about it. But then, Mind you, the only time in this week that I opened my scriptures to a more random part and not to a predetermined part, it really was one of those times where you're like, okay, Heavenly Father, give me the answer. And you answer it in it and you put your finger on a verse and, and it's just the exact answer you needed. And this one was even more specific. Like this one was just so cool to me because it's not like one of those verses, like if you love me, keep my commandments, where that can be applied to all kinds of situations in your life. But this one was just a very specific answer to a very specific question about a very specific part of the Bible. So listen to this. It was in first Nephi chapter 17. And at this point in the book of Mormon, Nephi is building a ship and his brothers are unwilling to help him. And they're not willing to believe that the Lord has commanded him to do it. And as they are complaining and teasing him, Nephi starts to get really sad because of their lack of faith. And as he gets sad, Laman and Lemuel start to rejoice over him, basically saying, Haha, we knew you couldn't do it. You're an idiot. You're a visionary man like our father. And it's at this point that Nephi delivers a powerful speech to them. And it's this speech that I that I went right to. I didn't read all of the, the context before. I literally went right to this verse. And it directly answered my question. When I told my husband about it, he said, Maybe Nephi had thought about the same things that have been bothering you as he read the same stories that we are reading now. Because as we know, that was those were the plates of brass. that They had the same stories that we had. 
We had already read earlier in the Book of Mormon and Nephi's story that he certainly wasn't comfortable with killing. So as I read this, I kind of felt a connection with Nephi, thinking about how he had perhaps thought about this same thing that I had been simmering on and asked the Lord and then received clarity and answers that he then shared with us. So in his speech to Laman and Lemuel, he's relating the story of the Israelites, and he's at the part where they're crossing the River Jordan on dry ground and headed into the Promised Land to conquer the Canaanites. So verse 32 in chapter 17. And after they had crossed the river Jordan, he did make them mighty unto the driving out of the children of the land, so the Canaanites, yea, unto the scattering them to destruction. And now do ye suppose that the children of this land, who were in the land of promise, who were driven out by our fathers, do ye suppose that they were righteous? Behold, I say unto you, nay. Do ye suppose that our fathers would have been more choice than they if they had been righteous? I say unto you, Nay. Behold, the Lord esteemeth all flesh in one. He that is righteous is favored of the Lord. But behold, this people, so the Canaanites, had rejected every word of God, and they were ripe in iniquity, and the fullness of the wrath of God was upon them. And the Lord did curse the land against them, and bless it unto our fathers. Yea, he did curse it against them unto their destruction, and he did bless it unto our fathers, unto their obtaining power over it. Behold, the Lord hath created the earth that it should be inhabited, and he hath created his children that they should possess it. And he hath raised up a righteous nation and destroyeth the nations of the wicked. And he leadeth away the righteous into precious land, and the wicked he destroyeth and curseth the land unto them for their sakes. He ruleth high in the heavens, for it is his throne, and the earth is his footstool. And he loveth those who will have him to be their God. Behold, he loved our fathers, and he covenanted with them, yea, even Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he remembered the covenants which he had made, wherefore he did bring them out of the land of Egypt. Okay, we learn so much there. We learn that the Canaanites were not a righteous nation, which I guess can be implied because we know that they worshipped gods that were not the god of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We, We know that, but somehow it makes me feel better to read that Nephi says, no, these were not righteous people that were be driven, being driven out of the land. And it also says that he curseth the land unto them for their sakes. So when the Lord is driving out a people, he's destroying a people, we know that it is for their good, that all things that any of us go through are always for our good. Something else that I considered is, you know, Nephi lived far before right now. And so maybe the account he had was, was more complete and maybe he had more detail surrounding these stories. For me, these verses that Nephi talks about, about this particular part in the Bible, were it was so helpful for me. It reminded me that the Lord favors righteous nations that choose to serve him. We learn a lot in the Book of Mormon and the Bible and the Doctrine and Covenants that the Lord uses captivity or chastisement or destruction of a nation as a mercy. Captivity and trials as a way to humble them or destruction ultimately as a way to ensure that they won't be held even further accountable for more and more sin and that future generations won't be held to that either. And that sometimes can be a hard thing to wrap your brain around when all we have available to us in our minds is the here and now. And it's hard to imagine that it's a greater mercy for the Lord to end our mortal journey rather than allow us to continue to destroy ourselves spiritually. But we know that spiritual death is worse than physical death. It is more permanent. It is definitely permanent, not more permanent. It's it's entirely more permanent than physical death because we'll all be resurrected. So in this book of Judges that we're studying this week, 
we aren't seeing the entire destruction of a people. We are seeing the consequence of sin. We're seeing the Lord try them so that he can humble them so that they can come back to him. So again, to ask ourselves, these cycles are so prevalent in the scriptures that it leads us to ask, do these lessons of captivity or destruction apply literally to us as well? For those of us that live in the United States, we have enjoyed the longest standing constitution that the world has ever had. The average constitution in the world stands for about 17 years. The United States Constitution has lasted for 235 years. Incredible, right? Dallin H. Oaks said, The United States Constitution is unique because God revealed that he established it for the rights and protection of all flesh. God has given his children moral agency, the power to decide and to act. The most desirable condition for the exercise of that agency is maximum freedom for men and women to act according to their individual choices. It's through the formation of the Constitution that the fullness of the gospel was able to be revealed. The restoration of the gospel has been able to get to the point that it is now. And the Lord created those conditions for that to happen. And since the United States Constitution was inspired of God, democracies all over the world have given people enormous freedom to use their agency to choose good or evil. Just by reading the scriptures, we know that people have always been able to choose between the two. But this special opportunity during this very special period of time before the Lord returns has given us the opportunity to live with a degree of freedom that also gives us more accountability. We have liberal access not only to the fullness of the gospel, but just information in general, the freedom to seek and pursue and choose pretty much whatever we want. We are able even oftentimes to within the confines of the law, or actually you can still choose to do it even outside of the confines of the law, but within the confines of the law, choose terrible wickedness, or you can also choose incredible righteousness. We have so much freedom right now. In Luke chapter 12, verse 48, it says, To whom much is given, much will be required. We in the United States and free countries around the world have been given so much opportunity, so much knowledge, and ultimately we have been given the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have been given so much. The Lord delivers the Israelites out of the hands of the Egyptians and ultimately made it possible for them to enter into the promised land, the land of Canaan, and conquer it. They were also given much. I think what the Lord told Joshua applies very much to a lot of us. Joshua chapter 24, verses 13 to 14. And I have given you a land for which ye did not labor, and cities for which ye built not, and ye dwelt in them. Of the vineyards and the olive yards which ye planted not, do ye eat. Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth. That resonates so much with me. I live in a land with a freedom that I did not personally fight for. I hope that I continue to do my my civic duty, my my duty and responsibility that I have to my children to maintain that freedom. But I myself did not sacrifice to bring this about and to, and I in in great part didn't, do a whole lot to get all that I have today and all the freedoms that I have today. Part of our responsibility now as citizens of our nations, of the world, is to always do things that help our nation stay on the right path. So think for just a moment if you feel as though your nation is a place collectively that the Lord would consider righteous, embracing truth as he defines it. And I think most of us can say no, that the world in general is not in that place. So likely neither is your nation. That doesn't mean that we don't believe that there are so many good people and good things happening within, 
But I think that we can all agree that our nations, the world as a whole collectively, is ripe for the wrath of the Lord. And we've been told that by prophets. And how does this wrath of the Lord play out? I think often it's not plagues like Egypt. It's just the consequences of our own sin finding their natural conclusion. James E. Talmadge said, Now I do not believe in trying to explain away the words of God that predict calamity, but are nevertheless full of assurance unto the righteous, be it a righteous man or a righteous nation. We should awaken to their dread import. The Lord is dealing with the nations of the earth, and his spirit has departed in large measure from nations that have defied him and his commandments. And as a result, they are largely being left to themselves, war with one another, and seek all means by which they can destroy one another most expediously. Now the Lord is not the author of these evil things. The nations are bringing these afflictions upon themselves, and there shall be a consummation brought about as the Lord hath decreed, which shall mean an end of all nations as such if they will not observe the law and the commandments of the Lord their God. In the United States where I live, we've had some pretty terrible things happen the last week. Most notably, perhaps, is what happened in Uvalde, Texas. There are many different causes of what happened there, all of which are valid. But if we were to point to one root cause, it would be the wickedness of our nation and the atmosphere in which our children are growing up. So I think what James E. Talmadge said applies so well to us as we've abandoned truth as God defines it, as we have left God in the dust as we mock his commandments. Now the Lord is not the author of these evil things. The nations are bringing these inflictions upon themselves. We are in a spiral as a nation, and as we get closer and closer to the second coming of the Lord, we know that there is only one end to that spiral, and that is the second coming of the Lord. Now, I don't know if we're there yet, if we're going to pull out of it, if we're going to be humbled and cry to the Lord and be delivered, but I think likely we're just at the point of a great division where the righteous will cling to the Lord and the wicked will do what they've always been prophesied to do. And things will play out exactly as they always have been meant to play out. Now, this all can be pretty dreary, right? It can be really heavy and hard to live with, especially since we live in a time where we quite literally get to see all of these terrible things play out in the world in front of our eyes. We don't just read about them. We don't just hear about them. We actually get to see terrible things that are happening either close to us or far away, which I think is a blessing and a curse. A blessing because I think the Lord always intended for us in the last days to have this time in the history of the world laid out so perfectly and clear in front of us. See what is happening and have it not be mistakable if you have eyes to see. The world is being simultaneously prepared and torn apart in preparation for the second coming of Jesus Christ. And remember that God is not the cause of that division. We are doing it to ourselves. Being able to see these things is also in some ways a curse or hard to deal with because it's hard to watch and it's painful to watch. It is no mystery what is happening. We watch it play out here in the book of Judges as the people choose to leave the Lord over and over again. We've been watching it play out in all of the Old Testament. It's laid out plainly in the book of Mormon. What is happening is a large scale version of what we've been reading about in the scriptures perhaps your whole life. So what's our job in all of this as we watch the world fall into chaos? Is it just to throw our hands up and decide that it's hopeless and wait for the Savior to come? No, 
we would be held accountable for that. That is not righteousness. That is not what we've been asked to do. Our job is to gather Israel. Our job is to stay spiritually separate from the world. Our job is to have the constant companionship of the Holy Ghost so that we can't be deceived, so that we can be a light to the world, so that we have the capability of doing the job that we've been asked to do. A brother in my ward this past Sunday gave a talk where he collected quotes from President Nelson throughout his ministry about the second coming of Jesus Christ, and he was kind enough to send his collection of quotes to me. As I read, I want you to notice how President Nelson's language changes over the years and how it becomes more urgent, more intense, and increasingly more excited. April General Conference, 1984. We are of the House of Israel, specifically of the lineage of Joseph, bearing the birthright and charged with the irrevocable responsibility to prepare the world for the second coming of the Savior. October, 1990. You are one of God's noble and great spirits, held in reserve to come to the earth at this time. In your premortal life, you were anointed to help prepare the world for the great gathering of the souls that will precede the second coming. You are one of a covenant people. You are an heir to the promise that all the earth will be blessed by the seed of Abraham, and that God's covenant with Abraham will be fulfilled through his lineage in these latter days. April 1994. On every continent and across the isles of the sea, the faithful are being gathered into the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Differences in cultural background, language, gender, and facial features fade into insignificance as members lose themselves in service to their beloved Savior. Paul's declaration is being fulfilled. As many of you as have been baptized unto Christ have put on Christ. April 1995. A giant step towards spiritual immunity is taken when we understand the expression, children of the covenant. To what covenant did the Savior refer? The covenant which he made with Abraham. The Lord added, I will remember the covenant which I have made with my people and have covenanted with them that I would gather them together in mine own due time. October 2002. Isaiah prophesied of hope for our day, speaking of the gathering of Israel and the restoration of the church through the prophet Joseph Smith. Isaiah wrote, It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again a second time to recover the remnant of his people. And he shall set up an ensign for the nations and shall assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. October 2010. The Book of Mormon teaches of the atonement of Jesus Christ and is the instrument by which God will fulfill his ancient promise to gather scattered Israel in these latter days. October 2011. Some of these promises have been fulfilled. Others are still pending. I quote from an early Book of Mormon prophecy, Our Father has not spoken of our seed alone, but also of all the house of Israel, pointing to the covenant which should be fulfilled in the latter days, which covenant the Lord made to our father Abraham. October 2018, Help gather Israel on both sides of the veil. This gathering is the greatest challenge, the greatest cause, and the greatest work on earth today. April 2019, You are among the finest, most valiant men who have ever come to the earth. Satan knows who you are and who you were premortally, and he understands the work that must be done before the Savior returns. October 2020. For the more than 36 years I've been an apostle, the doctrine of the gathering of Israel has captured my attention. Everything about it has intrigued me. April 2021. Part of the gathering of Israel, and a very important part, is the charge for us as a people to be worthy and willing to help prepare the world for the second coming of the Lord. October 2021. This is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We are His covenant people. The Lord declared that He would hasten His work in His time, and He is doing so at an ever-increasing pace. April 2020, we live in the day that our forefathers have awaited with anxious expectation. 
We have front row seats to witness live what Nephi saw only in vision, that the power of the Lamb of God would descend upon the covenant people of the Lord who were scattered upon all the face of the earth, and they were armed with righteousness and with the power of God in great glory. And I want to end by going back just a little bit to April 2019, the year before COVID hit. I plead with you who have distanced yourself from the church and with you who have not really sought yet to know that the Savior's church has been restored. Do the spiritual work to find out for yourselves and please do it now. Time is running out. I try not to be discouraged by the state of the world as we experience this final spiral away from the Lord. Remember that Paul was martyred while still declaring that he was joyful because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Philippians chapter 2, verse 17. Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. If Paul can rejoice, so can we. We are commanded to be of good cheer, even when things are hard, even when our circumstances are tragic. Because Nephi saw us in vision, a vision that is now your reality. And it came to pass that I, Nephi, beheld the power of the Lamb of God, that it descended upon the saints of the church of the Lamb, and upon the covenant people of the Lord, who were scattered upon all the face of the earth. And they were armed with righteousness and with power of God in great glory. Let's not be like the Israelites being pulled every which way, allowing ourselves individually to be led into these dangerous cycles. As we base our faith and our lives upon Jesus Christ, as we remember that it is upon the rock of our Redeemer, who is Christ, the Son of God, that we must build our foundation, a foundation whereon if we build, we cannot fall. One of the most important tools we've been given is the voice of the Lord through his appointed prophets and apostles. Harold B. Lee said, and tell the members of this church have that conviction that they are being led in the right way, and they have a conviction that these men of God are men who are inspired and have been properly appointed by the hand of God. They are not truly converted. There will be some things that take patience and faith. You may not like what comes from the authority of the church. It may contradict your political views. It may contradict your social views. It may interfere with some of your social life. But if you listen to these things as if from the mouth of the Lord himself, with patience and faith, the promise is that the gates of hell shall not prevail against you. Yea, and the Lord will disperse the powers of darkness from before you and cause the heavens to shake for your good and for his name's glory. And I say these things in the name of Jesus Christ.